I'm, last week we kicked off a relationship series. And basically all we did was we kind of laid some foundation. If you want to build a good marriage, we talked about this whole idea that the problem is not with your spouse. The problem ultimately is you. So meaning this, if you want a good marriage, then you have to make sure that your foundation is right. And the only way that you build a good foundation is by having a relationship with Jesus. So the thing, if you missed that, you can actually go to occonnect.com. You can listen to the podcast. They're all available on there. But today we're going to talk about something that regardless if you're married, if you're dating, if you're single, wherever you're at, it's going to apply to you. Because today, show of hands, how many of you guys deal with conflict in your relationships? Anybody in here? And anybody that does not raise your hand is an absolute liar. (laughs) Every single person in here deals with conflict. Now let me start out by saying this. Conflict is going to happen. So I don't want you to get me wrong in thinking that I'm going to come to you today and I'm going to preach a message to, to tell you 10 steps how you can have a conflict-free marriage. Um, if you're looking for that from me, well, I'm sorry, it's just not going to happen. Because um, conflict is going to happen. I can't, I can't keep you from that. God can't keep you from that. But the truth is, we can learn how to deal with conflict in a right way and in a healthy way. And we talked about last week in 1 Corinthians 7, 28, it says, but those who marry will have trouble in this life. So the scripture is very clear. If you get married, guess what? Conflict is coming your way. Conflict is coming, so we can't rid ourselves of that. Now, I think one of my pet peeves, though, oftentimes within churches, when we do marriage series or we talk about relationships, we present it in this way. Hey, listen, if you just do these five things that I'm about to tell you to do, your relationship is going to be great. It's going to look like a Disney movie. It's going to be so good. And he's just going to sweep you off your feet. And he's always going to be romantic. And you're going to serve him. And then you're going to walk out of this marriage series. And your marriage is going to be perfect. And all you have to do to ruin that is get in the car and slam your wife's finger in the door and everything I just said is over, right? So oftentimes when we talk about marriage, I think even in the church sometimes, we give you these principles. To be honest with you, they're just completely unrealistic. We buy into this fact that marriage is going to look like this Hallmark card. So we post quotes on Facebook like, life is not about the breaths that you take, it's about the moments that take your breath away. You know, when you see that, you're like, come on, dude, seriously? Like, have you ever done that in a fight? Like, listen, babe, I know we've been fighting all day, but life is not about the breaths that you take, you know? She'd be like, boy, shut up! So, life is not a Hallmark card, right? I found some quotes that maybe will apply more to your marriage and where you're at right right now, or maybe some of your relationships. And it says this, I must admit, you brought religion into my life. I never believed in hell till I met you. <laughs> here's, here's another one. When we were together, you said you would die for me. Now that we've broken up, I think it's time for you to keep your promise. <laughs> here's one more. Looking back over the years, we've been together, and I can't help but wonder, what was I thinking? <laughs> so maybe right now, these quotes apply more appropriately to your marriage. And listen, we laugh about them. It's all fun and games. But the truth is, some of us are really in the trenches of our relationship right now. Some of us are really at a place where we're just going, I don't even think God can help me. I, I feel like I've gone so far off the deep end. Maybe, maybe there's been an affair. 
Maybe there's been secrets. Maybe there's been things that you never thought that you would do or say. Maybe you spoke words that no matter how hard you try, you can't take them back. And you've wounded this person so much and it just feels like the only option is to end it. The only option is to walk away. And here's the truth. Real marriage is a glorious burning joy and it's hard. And it's harder than you ever realize. There's going to be blood, there's going to be sweat, and there's going to be tears. And oftentimes, it's everything but a Hallmark card. Oftentimes, it's everything but sweet. But here's the truth. Good couples, I want you to hear this. This is kind of what we're going to base everything off of this morning. Good couples are not couples who never fight. Good couples are couples who learn to fight fair. They learn to fight well. Instead of fighting against each other, they learn to fight for each other. So whenever conflict arises, instead of belittling that person, we're finding out ways where we can encourage them and speak life into them. Instead of the conflict tearing us apart, we learn how to use it ultimately for good. Now, if you're one of those starry-eyed couples that's dating in here today, and you're saying, listen, Pastor Zach, um, we never fight. We just don't. I don't know why he's so perfect, she's so perfect, and Claire and I used to be that. We used to be that starry-eyed couple, and here's what I have to say to you this morning, how blissful it is to be young and stupid. Because, <laughs> listen, remember that time when you first got married or you first met your spouse, and you're like, oh man, this is, they're everything I ever wanted. They're they're everything I ever needed. She does this. He does this. And you stay married long enough, and what happens? Arguments arise. Conflicts arise. Things begin to happen. And then you ask yourself the question, how in the world did we arrive at this spot? And I want you to hear me. The problems that end marriages are not unique problems. They're usually generic problems. Usually couples don't know how to handle conflict. And over time... And over us just stuffing things under the rug and ignoring the conflict, ignoring the issues, all of a sudden it begins to blow up in our faces. Because here's the truth. You can only ignore an issue for so long until you just blow up, right? You can only stuff conflict and hide it under the rug for so long until you literally just erupt like at a volcano with emotions, right? And here's what happens. Unresolved conflict is always going to lead to unpredictable consequences, Unresolved conflict is always going to lead to unpredictable consequences. So here's what I'm going I'm to tell you this morning. The conflict that you have in your relationships, it could be a friend, it could be marriage, it could be dating, wherever it is. The conflict that you have in your marriages, if you don't deal with that, it's going to lead to consequences that you never thought could happen. Because here's the truth. When you met your wife or you met your husband, you never said, I do, and then, hey, in two years, let's get a divorce, Right? You don't go into it like that. Most, most couples go into that marriage. They go into that relationship and say, hey, this is forever. And then what happens? Over years of time of you just shoving and stuffing things under the rug, these generic, unordinary problems, it may just, man, he leaves the toilet seat up all the time. And I wake up in the middle of the night, and true story, I, I left the toilet seat up when my wife and I first got married. And it's about 2 o'clock in the morning, and she goes to sit down in the bathroom, and I hear, ah, <laughs> That was the last time I left the toilet seat up, right? But today I want to look at two passages of Scripture about conflict 
and how to deal with it appropriately, how we learn to fight for each other rather than with each other. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Ephesians 5, um, 25 through 27. Ephesians 5, if you don't have a Bible, it's going to be up here on the screens, and it says this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, I'm going to explain this verse, because the context of this verse is conflict. And here's what Paul is setting up for us. This is what he's saying. He's saying, the baseline... The model marriage should be modeled off of how much Jesus loved the church. The model marriage should be based on the cross. And I'm going to explain that in a minute. But listen, the cross was about our conflict, wasn't it? The cross was about a wrong that we could not make right on our own. So if you're in here this morning and and you woke up today and you feel like, man, I feel like there's something empty in me. Or I feel like there's something in my life that is just not complete. It's because we have not understood how much the cross actually means that that God sent his one and only son, Jesus, for you and me to die a death that we could never die. To pay a debt that we could never pay. The cross ultimately was about our conflict. Saying, if it was saying, Zach, there was nothing that you could do to attain salvation on your own. I I had to send Jesus to make things right for you. And here's what's hard. The cross is about laying down your life for someone else. Now, in marriage, let's apply that to marriage. If our relationship to our spouse is supposed to model how the cross and Jesus modeled his way for the church, here's what happens. If Jesus is laying down his life for the church, he's giving up his life so that we could receive salvation, and our marriages should model that, then what happens? As a husband, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to lay down our lives for our wife. As a wife, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to lay down our lives for our husband. Now, what does this cause in us? When you lay down your life for somebody and you serve somebody else, it creates conflict, doesn't it? Because at the core of who we are as human beings, we are ultimately selfish. And when we have to lay down our life for somebody else, it begins to present conflict and we don't feel right and we feel like, well, I never have time for myself. I'm always serving this other person or I never have time to do what I want to do, and all of a sudden our spouse begins to stand in the way of what we really want. But remember, we talked about it last week, God's primary goal in marriage is not to make you happy, it's to make you holy. Meaning this, God's primary design in marriage is to continually point you back to the cross. Because no matter how much you argue, no matter how much you work through things, no matter what you deal with, you're always going to have this inner turmoil that you have to wrestle with. You have to surrender that to Jesus. And that happens in the context of our relationships. So let's back up just a little bit to Ephesians 4. And what Paul is actually going to do is he's going to show us how we deal with with this conflict. So let me just summarize what I talked about for a moment. In Ephesians 5, we see the intent of marriage. The intent of marriage is laying your life down for the other person. Momentarily setting aside your wants, your needs for the other person and to serve them. That's what Jesus did for us. He came down from heaven in the form of a baby so that he could serve us so that, we, that he could die so that we didn't have to. 
So here's what we have, Ephesians 4, 25 through 29. It says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. That's hard, isn't it? Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion. That it may give grace to those who hear. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. So here's what I'm going to do for the rest of the sermon. I'm going to take that verse, and I'm going to give you three things that are going to help you resolve some of the conflict. Point number one is this, and we, I take this straight from the scriptures. Command number one, be angry and do not sin. Put away all bitterness, wrath, anger, slander, and malice. Now, here's what's going on. I want you to notice something. Paul doesn't say it's not okay to get angry. He says, look, you can be angry. Because how many of you know that the person that probably makes you the most frustrated in this life is going to be your spouse, right? The person that just knows how to push all of your buttons. And some of you in here, like, you're really good button pushers. Like, you see, like, how far can I drive her just to push her button? I just want to get a reaction. Husbands, admit it. Do you ever do that? I just want to push the button because I just want to get a reaction. I used to do that to my wife all the time. I used to film it. I have a collection of videos, actually, of uh, me jumping around a corner and scaring her until one time she decked me in the face. Um, and I wanted to be like, oh, well, well, let's go. Like, <laughs> um, but sometimes we get good at pushing buttons. And here's the truth. I could, just like the scriptures, I could say, hey, listen, if you're not going to have conflict in your marriage, then guess what? You've got to stop being angry. You've got to stop having bitterness. It'd be easy for me to tell you to do that, right? I could just command you to say, hey, stop being angry. But the truth is, most of us in here, we don't even know where our anger comes from. We don't, even know why, we don't even know why we're so bitter at our spouse. We don't even know why they frustrate us so much. We don't even know why when they come around a corner, you're just like, oh. oh. Some of us, we don't even know why that happens. So here's what I want to do. Real quick, I want to diagnose real quick where that anger, where that bitterness comes from. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, that is what is creating the conflict. So here's what James says. James 4, 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? Now watch this. That your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So let me ask you again. Where does your conflict come from? Where does this anger, where does this bitterness, where does this rage that you have against your spouse, where is it coming from? And many of you would say, well, Pastor Zach, that's easy. It comes from the person sitting right next to me right now. (laughs) It comes from my spouse. It's the way they treat me. It's the way that they talk to me. It's the way that they act. It's they never keep their promises. But James is saying, listen, think deeper than that. Where is it really coming from? And according to James, this is what he's saying. The reason you have conflict is because you're not getting what you want. The reason you have anger and rage and bitterness and malice and hate for that person is because you're not getting what you want. So, so let me give it to you this way. The other day, my wife, every single day, um, 
at the end of the month, she's actually going to be running a half marathon. So she's been training like crazy. It's, I think it's a 13.2 miles. And uh, she's like just, she's killing it. Um, she, I think she ran 12 miles the other day. And she regularly just like, I'm going to go on a run. And I'm going to run 10 miles. I'm like, dang. And so she's been training for this. And uh, I get home from work and it had been a long day, just a long day. She said, hey, do you, do you mind if I go run? Sure, go run. So she goes and, and runs, and if you don't know me, um, I'm, I got five kids, okay? So when any, when any one person leaves, it's not like just some small task, okay? When, when Claire leaves and I'm there with all the five kids, there is work to be done, or they will destroy your home, right? Anybody that knows, that has kids, you know me. Like Isaac, he's just... He's my second son, and I love him, but he writes on everything. So if you ever come to my house, on my wall, he has artwork everywhere that says Isaac. And I'll be like, hey, did you write that? And he's like, no. I'm like, that's your name. (laughs) (laughs) Unless your brothers are setting you up, that is your name, bro. So it, it, it can be rough. It can be, it can be something that you're constantly, you know, you're on high alert. You got no time for yourself when the other person leaves. So she's running. And uh, usually she's gone for about, a, about an hour or so. Hour goes by, and I'm looking at my watch, and I'm like, where is she? I just had a long day at work, and I need her home. 30 minute, another 30 minutes go by, I'm like, oh my God, dude, where is she? So by this time, I'm like, I'm calling her. And she's not answering her phone. Two hours, she's still on a run. About two and a half hours, she comes back, and she's all, you know, she's got this smile on her face, and I'm like, where have you been? What is going on? She's like, I, I just did the longest run I've ever done. I ran 12 point something. I was like, I don't care. <laughs> I've been with them for two hours. And all of a sudden I realized like in that moment, was I mad that she was gone for two and a half hours? No. I was mad that she stood in the way of me getting what I wanted. So, so let me put, prove it to you this way. What I really wanted, because I had a long day of work, I wanted to go home, and I wanted some time to myself with quiet. And the reason that I was frustrated at her, the reason that I was angry, or the reason that I was mad is not because she ran longer than I had anticipated. Ultimately, she stood in the way of what I wanted. And that's where many of us are at today. We feel like we have anger towards that person or bitterness towards that person because they're standing in the way of what you really desire and what you really want. So I want you to ask yourself this question. What is it that you want bad enough that you're willing to yell, tune out, abuse, and neglect the other person to get? And whatever that is, that is the very thing that is causing your conflict. Because at the end of the day, we would, the scriptures would call that idolatry. You're pl- in that moment of time when she ran longer and I had to stay with the kids, I was pushing my time alone as more important than serving my wife. So therefore, it creates conflict in me. Therefore, it creates an argument. Therefore, it creates conflict. See, if your desires have become idolatry, meaning they are so important, what ends up happening is now the things that you really want begin commanding your emotions. So what it does is it begins to tailor the way that you talk to that person. 
So what ha- let, let's just be honest. So what happens when she comes in from the run? And I'm like, hey, babe, I'm so glad. I'm like, you know, every spouse does it. You, you just give them the look. Where you been, go? <laughs> and then like for a moment, for like five minutes, what do you, you don't talk and she kind of knows something's wrong, right? She's like, man, I just walked in. The moment You ever walk around the corner, your wife's in the kitchen, you walk in, you're like, oh God, it's tense in here. Nothing has gone on, but it is tense right here. You just walk around, hey, babe. oh God, she's in a bad mood. You know what I'm talking about? And it starts like that. So what do we do? We talked about this last week. Marriage has the ability to reduce us down to two-year-olds, doesn't it? So what do we do? We, we act like two-year-olds. We come in, and I come, she comes in from the run, and what do I do? I'm not going to talk to you. And then when she says, hey, how was your day? I was like, I don't know. How was your day? Because <laughs> mine sucks. <laughs> right? And so we start to throw out all these things. So I want you to ask yourself that question yet again. What is the one thing that you're willing to tune out your spouse for, abuse your spouse, neglect your spouse? If you can nail down whatever that one thing is, that's idolatry in your life, and that is what's causing conflict. So so let me put it this way. They may be at fault in some things, but the rage and bitterness point more towards a deeper problem in you. So your spouse may be at fault for something, but the anger that you feel towards them points to a deeper issue in your own heart. Remember what we talked about last week? Point number one, the problem is not your spouse, it's you. So in the context of every relationship, you always have to go back and say, God, what do I need to change first? Rather than, well, I'll change whenever my spouse changes. Or I'll put in the work whenever they put in the work. And we always have to go back to that. God, what do I need to do first. So let me sum all this up by saying all conflict can result in idolatry. All conflict results into something that you want so bad. James even puts it in a way that you're willing to murder. Some of you are like, now you're talking about my marriage. (laughs) Whatever it is that you want so badly, Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe it's hunting. Maybe it's fishing. Maybe it's, I just want to be, I want to go hang out with the bros. I want to go hang out with my guys. And there's going to be moments in time. Listen, like I read in Ephesians 5 earlier, the whole point of marriage is you laying your life down for your spouse. So you know what that means? The moment you get married, you are no longer your own. You're no longer your own. So there's going to be times in your marriage and in your life when you may want to do something so bad, but you have to come back to the point of Ephesians 5. It is my job to lay down my life for my spouse, to serve them, to love them. And that means at times that I've got to put aside my wants and my desires so that I can serve them. So here's the problem. When you feel wronged, when you have anger towards them, what do we do? Now we feel it is our responsibility to take vengeance on that person, right? Oh, you wrong me? <laughs> you don't know me, girl. <laughs> you wrong the wrong person, <laughs> right? So it's our job. We say, oh, I'm going to take vengeance. You stab me, I'm going to stab you back. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. And men often, that, for many times for us, what do we do? We sling words. We, we talk down on our wives. We, we, women do it as well. But here's what, here's what Paul says in Romans twelve nineteen. It says, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. 
For it is written, it is mine to avenge, and I will repay, says the Lord. So this is what Jesus is saying. It's not your job to take revenge. It's not your job to defend yourself. At the end of the day, allow God to avenge what he needs to avenge. What Paul is saying, look, justice will be served. And here's what I want you to understand this morning. Think about this. Every sin against you or against me will one day be avenged in one of two places, in hell or on the cross. And so here's the, here's the thing. The reason that we have to see the cross is so big because Jesus is saying, I avenged all your debts already if you can get that. All the wrongs that people have done for you, I've already paid for those things. You don't need to avenge yourself. So let me give you another example. People say this all the time. This, have you ever heard this phrase? Just forgive and forget. Just move on. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Just forgive and forget and just move on. And on one level... I understand the sentiments, but on the other level, that's impossible, right? It's impossible to just forgive and forget and to move on. How do you, because here's the truth, how do you forget what somebody has done to you? How do you forget how somebody's abused you? How do you forget if somebody raped you? How do you forget those things and just move on, right? Sometimes people in counseling, oh, just forget it and just, just, just move on. It's not a big deal. But here's the truth. This is what I love about the gospel the good news of Jesus. Even Jesus does not forgive and forget. Now, let me explain it this way. God's omniscient, you know what that means? It simply means he's all-knowing. He knows everything. If he doesn't want to forget something, he doesn't have to. But the beauty of the gospel, it says this, when you wrong someone, when you sin against someone, God chooses not to remember. It's not that he doesn't have the ability to remember. He says, listen, I love you so much that I choose no longer to remember how you wronged me. And the same thing applies within marriage. It's not just forgive and forget. Forgiveness at the end of the day is a choice that you have to make to forgive that person. It's not that you just say, hey, I'm just going to move on and, you know, it's over. Every, and some, listen, ladies, men, sometimes every single day forgiveness is a choice until it really sinks down. Sometimes every single day, you're going to have to make that choice to forgive that person for what they've done to you. And every single day, after, after time, over and over and over again, finally you're going to start buying into it, and finally you're going to come to a place where you genuinely forgive that person. I often say it like this, harboring bitterness is like trying to hurt the other person by drinking a cup of poison yourself. And that's what we're doing. Listen, when we're not forgiving someone, all we're doing is we're drinking the poison and hope that person drops dead. I don't know if you know this or not, and and I think everybody can relate with me in here, but when I hold on to something against my spouse, when I'm angry, when I'm frustrated, when I'm bitter, when I hold on to it, I can feel it. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like you can feel, it's like you feel this weight. You don't know how to describe it. You don't necessarily know what it is, but you're like, I just, I got to get this off of me. And the only way that that happens is by you every single day making a choice to forgive that person. Because listen, God forgave you. The reason that you can forgive the most insane, crazy, hideous things that have been done to you is because God forgave you. God forgave you when you were at your darkest. God forgave you when you were at your worst and you didn't deserve grace and he still gave it to you anyway. This is why we can forgive our spouse. 
Command two that we're going to see in Scripture. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Watch, as Christ forgave you. See, the power of the gospel is this, that we're sinners and we deserve hell. But, and I love that in the Bible, but God died for us. And he chose to forgive us even when we didn't deserve it. There was an old Methodist preacher by the name of John Wesley, and he used to describe the gospel like this. He would say, the gospel was like learning you had a rich uncle. And he died, and in your bank account, he left you $10 billion. Now, he says, now, on the way, when you learn this news, what are you like, oh my God, like, uh, you walk into your job, I quit, <laughs> right? And he says, now, on the way to the bank to go get your funds, he said, you're driving there and your tire falls off. Now, he says, in that moment, are you cursing God and cursing your tire like, you dumb car, God, I can't believe you. I was on my way to go get my money and my tire falls off. He says, you know what? You barely even notice that your tire falls off. You get out of the car and you skip and run and laugh with joy all the way down to the bank. Why? Because you got $10 billion in the bank. He said, that's what the gospel's like. When someone offends you, when you're so captured by the cross, and when you're so captured by a God who loves you so much, when offenses come your way, you, steep, you, you still keep going towards the gospel because it doesn't bother you anymore. It, you come to the place where you're like, yeah, the tire fell off, but I got $10 billion in the bank. So listen, here's what I want you to get this morning. The conflict in your marriage should not define your marriage. It does not define who you are. Because if you're captured by the cross and you're captured by the gospel, then this is what happens. Yes, they offended me, but I have a God who loves me and forgives me. And so guess what? I move on. I move on. And here's why many of us can't move towards forgiveness. Because of the fact that the cross is small for us, it seems like some minuscule thing, it seems like something that we wear around our neck and we talk about on Easter. It's not a reality for us. I can't express, for me, I'm an analytical thinker, I think about everything. I read books constantly, I love to learn, and Christianity didn't come easy for me, even though I grew up in a Christian home. I had a lot of doubts, I had a lot of concerns, but here's the one thing that captured me over and over and over again that I could not get away from. It was the fact that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, was that he came, he died, and he loved the person so horrible as me. And that's what captured me. So you're telling me that after everything that I've done, after all the wrongs that I've done, after how many people I've wronged and how many people I've hurt and how many people's lives that I have done whatever to, that God still loves me just as much? Absolutely. That is what captures me. And here's what happens. How much people's wrongs against you bother you shows how little you're captured by the gospel. It shows how little you're captured by Jesus. So here's the truth. Yet again, I talked about it last week. You cannot have a good marriage if your foundation is not based in Christ. That's why I set this whole thing up. I, I, I hate marriage sermons. Just, I'm going to give you five points to have, a better, to have a better marriage life. Five points to do this. And, and listen, you're going to walk out of here and conflict is going to slap you in the face. 
And you're going to have to deal with real life over and over again. It's why your foundation has to be cemented in Christ. It's why it has to be there. You need to recognize how much God has forgiven you and what a treasure that is. And if you can grab a hold of that truth, you'll treat your spouse a whole lot different. The conflict that you deal with internally will look a whole lot different. And here's the truth. If you refuse to give your spouse, you are effectively saying that their sin against you is bigger than your sin against God. That's just not the case, is it? See, I I find oftentimes that it's so easy for us when we have wronged somebody, God, please give me grace. God, forgive me. I'll move on. But when somebody else wrongs you, what happens? You're like, God, kill them. They hurt me, they wronged me. You want, you want grace, but you want the other person to experience the, the wrath and the judgment of God, right? You want them to experience that. So command number three, and I think this is a, a difficult one that many of us deal with. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building the other person up. Here is where the, the, the stake hits the ground, and this is where most conflict comes. Because most of us don't know how to control our tongues. James even says in the Bible, it says, the tongue is like a rudder. It steers the entire ship. You ever like say something in a moment and you realize by the words that you're saying or the way that you're demeaning that person, you're commanding the conversation. You've got their attention simply by your tongue and simply by your words. And so what what James is saying is he's saying this. Let your words be filled with healing, grace, not hatred, not bitterness, not revenge. And the only way to do this is by understanding the gospel that ultimately at the end of the day, grace is what changes people. How did God change you? How did God capture your heart? It was by grace, right? So, So let me put it to you this way. Threats and punishment can change people's behavior temporarily. But only grace can change somebody's heart. Only grace can grab onto somebody. You know, the biggest strides that I've made in marriage to become a better husband is when my wife has showed me grace. When I've blown it, when I've been like, God, babe, I blew it again. And rather than her, just, yeah, you did blow it again. <laughs> you did mess up. And rather than her just beating me over the head with my failure, hey, I forgive you. And let, let, I want to help move on through this. I want to help you deal with this. I want to build you up. I want to serve you. I want to love you. The greatest strides that Claire and I have made in our marriage is when we have extended grace towards one another. Now, there is an art to know what to say and when to say it. And the truth is, you want to know the number one way of learning that art? It's defined by one word. Listening. Listening. Because the vast majority of communication problems are not expressing problems. Like, we're good at expressing our emotions. Like, many of you women, like, you, your husband, he knows how you feel. <laughs> he knows what you think. We don't have expressing problems. Most of us have listening problems. So you know what it is? Sometimes just stepping, taking a step back, and instead of going, I'm going to win this argument. Because aren't we doing that oftentimes? I catch myself all the time when my wife and I are getting an argument. I'm not listening to anything she's saying. I'm just waiting for her to say one thing so I can pick up and use it against her. Right? 
So you're waiting, you're listening, but you're not listening so that it can connect to your heart and so you can see where your wife is really at. You're listening so that you can throw back, well, what about this? What about when you said this or what about when you did this? And so it just resolves in this never-ending conflict that never resolves itself. So it's treating our spouse with grace. You should, now listen, I'm not saying that you never speak the truth to them. I'm not saying that you never confront them on issues, but there is a way to go about confronting your spouse. And you have to do it with grace. I had a college professor when I was in Bible school a long time ago that, that said this, and it always stuck with me. He said, listen, you can go up to somebody and you can tell them the truth, and maybe it is the truth, but if you give it to them in a harsh way, they disregard it. It doesn't matter how true your words are, but if you come to them in grace and you speak the truth, they'll receive it. And I've noticed that when I've had to have the most difficult conversations with my wife or vice versa, we come to each other and have to have those hard conversations. If I come with grace, I've got her ears. If I come with grace and understanding and I give her the benefit of the doubt, hey, maybe you didn't mean to say this, maybe you didn't mean to do this, she listens. But if I come with accusations and slinging words and all these things, what does it do? It creates a never-ending conflict that never resolves itself. See, the truth that is not wrapped in grace will always seem spiteful, and it always seems like you have something to prove. So here's what I want to do real quick. I want to sum up everything that I've talked about, and then I want to give you some practical things for a moment. I want you to remember this, that marriage is all about your sanctification. That's God's original design. It's his original intent. And all sanctification is is a fancy theological word that simply means this. God is using it to make you more like Jesus. So some of you in here, you're like, man, marriage is difficult. It's hard. Yeah, it is. But God loves you enough to pair you with that person. And some of you in here, you're saying, well, you don't understand. Like, I married the wrong person. Do you know we all marry the wrong person? Because we're all filled with flaws. We're all filled with things that we never thought that we were capable of. You're never going to marry the perfect right person. Although Disney may convince you otherwise. The story's not always happily ever after. As I said in the very beginning, marriage is going to be hard. There's going to be seasons in life where it's going to be harder. There's going to be seasons in life when there's going to be blood, there's going to be sweat, there's going to be tears, there's going to be crying, there's going to be pain. But at the end of the day, it's not because Jesus has forgotten about you. At the end of the day, it's because he loves you and he wants to make you more like himself. So guess what? He chose your mate on purpose. The way that she rubs you the wrong way sometimes or he rubs you the wrong way, it's all within God's design. (laughs) He didn't mess up when he paired you with that person. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you some practical things. Okay, number one, and this is important, overlook what you can. Overlook what you can. So meaning this, you don't have to comment on every single thing that bothers you. Ever see those relationships like they go out in public and the husband says something and the wife just like, bam, caps him with her. Well, you don't do that. Like, dang. (laughs) In marriage, listen, it's oftentimes, it's often about choosing your battles. Am I going to fight for this one or am I just going to overlook it and give it to God? 
Proverbs 19.11 even says, it is to a man's benefit to overlook an offense. Like it is to your benefit sometimes to overlook something. So what am I saying? I'm saying that every single thing that bothers you in that relationship, you don't have to comment about it. You don't have to say something about it. You know, there's been times in my own relationship where I have to resolve to the fact of, I just got to go, this bothers me, this frustrates me, but I'm going to bring it to God. And not only, if, if I can't resolve it between me and God, then you know what? This is the importance yet again about our life groups. I'm going to go bring it to another brother, another sister that loves Jesus and could counsel me in the right way. See, if you're in community, that's the beauty of that. You can pick up the phone and now you've got people that you can lean on. You have people maybe that have been right where you're at. See, uh, it's even Mike sharing his story today. Hey, this is where me and my wife were at. We, we were signing the divorce papers. And then to see them where they're at today, hey, they're serving, they're loving Jesus, and they've got a great marriage. Listen, why can't that be your story? Why can't that be where you're at? And maybe you're not on the verge of divorce, but maybe, maybe you're just like roommates under the same house. Yeah, we live together, but I got my room, he has his room, I do my time, he does his time. We're staying together for the kids. Look, God wants more for you than that. And oftentimes it comes down to the fact that you just got to learn to overlook things. We don't got to comment on every single thing that bothers us. The second thing, this is extremely important. Examine your heart regularly. Look internally. So before you dive into an argument, before you dive into a conflict, examine yourself. Why am I so angry? Why am I so frustrated? Is it because, like we talked about last week, do I just have unrealistic expectations of my spouse? And that's why I'm angry? Because oftentimes if we can just sit and we can examine ourselves and realize, man, I don't even need to have this conversation with her. The issue's me. <laughs> Remember I said earlier, even if you've been wrong, what does the anger say about your heart? What does the bitterness say about you? And this is why outside counsel is so important. This is why getting other people around you, this is why life groups are so important, are serving on a team. This is why it's so important because it connects you to people that can help you walk through life. The third thing, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this one. Be practical in how you fight. So, so let me explain what that means. Don't fight when you're tired or you're in a certain mood. Listen, women, I'll just tell you this right off the bat. The worst thing that you could do, your husband walks through the door, he just got off of work, he opens the door, and you unload on him. He's like, ah. Like, we've got to, you got to learn to choose those battles. If my wife has had a long day at home, and she's been wrangling kids all day, she's exhausted, and she's tired, it's not a good time for me to bring up something that I'm frustrated with her about. Hey, I know the, t- I know the day has been tired, and you're exhausted, but by the way, I'm pretty mad at you. <laughs> It just doesn't go well. You don't have the emotional capacity or energy to get into that argument. So what does it do? Rather than working through a resolution, you just spend the time just slinging mud at each other. Throwing off arguments, offending each other, getting mad at each other, and you don't resolve anything. So here's what this means, and and my wife and I do this. You've got to use a 24-hour rule. So meaning you get to the place in your marriage, and you get, pause, we're not resolving anything here. So here's what you do. In the middle of conflict, in the middle of an argument, and I've done this to my wife, and it just throws her off, and she's done it to me. We're arguing, and I just put my hand on her. I'm like, Father God, I thank you for my wife. (laughs) 
what the heck are you doing? Get your hand off of me and fight me. <laughs> oh, pray. What do you do? You pray. God, we're not resolving this. We're not getting anywhere. If there's anything in me, would you reveal it? If there's anything in her, God, please reveal it. <laughs> what do you do? You pray and then you say, hey, listen, tomorrow we're going to talk through this. I'm going to sit on it. You're going to sit on it. We're going to think about it. And men, here's the thing. You have to keep your word on that. You've got to keep your word. Because don't use that as, well, Pastor Zach said we're going to use a 24-hour rule. We're going to talk about that next week. And then you never talk about it. <laughs> So here's the thing, men, you've got to keep your word, if, and, and if you don't, then your wife will know that you're just trying to, you know, it's a cop-out. We'll talk about it tomorrow. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> we'll talk about it tomorrow, and then you make a time. We're going to sit down, we're going to talk about it when you're not tired, I'm not exhausted, you're not in an emotional mood, I'm not angry or frustrated about something, we sit down, and what happens? Rather than slinging mud at each other, rather than just throwing out words that we don't really mean, we begin to actually resolve the conflict. Number four, be quick to listen and slow to speak. <laughs> very slow to speak. Be quick to listen to what your spouse is saying and be very slow to, to speak. So here's what you gotta, here's what I'm saying. Seek first to understand your, your spouse and then secondly, you can come to the point where they understand you. There's got to be somebody that's more mature in the relationship that says, okay, time out. I'll hear you out. You say everything that you need to say, and I'm going to seek to listen what you're actually telling me, and I won't say anything. You know, the number one thing that drives my wife up the wall is when we're in an argument, and I just interrupt her. I interrupt, and I do it a lot. <laughs> I just interrupt her. Yeah, but, and she's like, but you're not hearing me. You're not listening to me. Why? Because I'm so quick to speak, and I'm not listening to her. Proverbs 18.33 says it this way. He who gives an answer before he, before he hears is a folly and a shame. And in some other verses it says, he who gives an answer before he hears is a fool. So look at your spouse and say, you fool. <laughs> I'm just kidding, don't do that. So what does that mean? That we, we don't interrupt. And men, let me, ask, let me tell you, one of the best things that you can do and I've had to learn this within nine years of marriage. Because sometimes your wife is talking a million miles. You're like, woman, I don't understand what you're saying. And my wife is a verbal processor. So meaning like she's speaking everything before she really even knows how she's feeling about the situation. Can any women relate with that? Okay, so I'm an internal processor. So I sit back and I got to think, and okay, how do I really feel? My wife is just, let me just get it all out there. So I've had to learn that. So I just let, I'm going to sit back and I'm just going to let her verbally process. And after she's all done, if I don't understand something, here's the best thing that you can do. Hey, what did you mean by that? Can you explain what you said there? Because I'm, I am lost. And just simply ask questions. And here's what you've got to understand in conflict. Your spouse is not a problem to be solved. They are a person that wants to be heard. And guys were so quick to that. Oh, you got a problem? Oh, well, here's a solution. I'll give you one right now. As men, we're, we're naturally wired as just fixers. And it can be a good attribute in work. Somebody comes in, they, you, they've got a problem. They're like, I don't know how to do this. Well, you need to do this, 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 and this. Get out of my office. It doesn't work that way with your wife. Well, baby, you need to do this, 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 and this. Get out of my office. 
It just doesn't work that way. She wants to know that, do you understand what I'm saying? And are you going to make efforts to change? Yes, I understand what you're saying. Number five, this is huge. Seek resolution, not victory. So you may be right, but is it really worth it? Because here's the thing. You ever gotten in an argument that goes so deep, like 30 minutes in, you're like, what are we arguing about? I have no idea, but I will win this argument, right? I don't know what we're arguing about, but I will get the leg up. I will walk away feeling victorious. Like you want to walk away crushed, her, (laughs) right? And listen, in argument, the end result is not winning, See, if you win, you lost. If you're like, well, I won that argument, well, you've already lost. The whole purpose of a disagreement is saying, hey, we're going to come together, we disagree, we're going to reason with one another, we're not going to belittle each other, and we're going to come to a place where we need to seek resolution. We both are being, we're both misunderstood in this, you wanted me to say this to you or you wanted me to treat you this way? I just, I'm sorry, I wasn't getting it, so let's sit down, let's seek resolution. But too many of us get into arguments to win the argument, to get a leg up, to feel, well, I feel better about myself for winning. And yeah, I feel justified because I was right. And here's the truth. Men, women, there will be times where, listen, in the middle of the argument, you may be 5% wrong, but the most mature thing that you could do is say, hey, you know what, I'll take the blame for that. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. Can we just move on? And listen, that's hard to do. That's so hard to do. Uh, Look, just just take the blame. But yet again, it goes back to what I talked about in the very beginning. Jesus took the blame for us. And he had nothing to do with it. (laughs) Nothing. He said, I love humanity so much, I'll I'll send my one and only son. I didn't do anything because he lived a perfect life. He never sinned. Never made a mistake. And yet he paid a debt in our place. So seek resolution, not victory. Number six, this is important. Don't give up. Don't give up. See, marriage is a covenant that is only dissolvable by death. Before you give up on your marriage, here's what I want you to do. Give the power of grace an option. Listen to you. I, if you get anything that I say this morning, anything, If you could walk away with one nugget, all I want it to be is simply this, don't give up. They may have wronged you, they may have hurt you, they may have backstabbed you, and the truth is maybe they are scum right now. Maybe they're at a place where they're so selfish and they're so self-centered, but don't give up. And the reason that I can say that is because Jesus never gave up on his bride. I I could imagine it this way. When humanity got so evil and the only solution that God saw was to take one righteous man and his family, which was Noah, and say, build an ark. I'm going to put your family on it. Put the animals on it and I'm going to wipe out humanity. Now, I could imagine if you were the angels in heaven going like, God, don't you think you should just wipe them all out? Like, kill Noah, too. Because that dude is bound to screw up at some point. And his kids are bound to make a mistake. 
But yet God, he's, in a, he's a relentless father, but he says, no, but I love my creation too much. I'm not giving up on them. Because there still is hope. They can still be redeemed. They can still find and make their way to the father. Don't give up on your marriage. Listen, when we kicked this series off last week, within a matter of a week, it was like um, my Facebook messenger and phone calls, just people calling, texting, messaging, all this kind of stuff. It's all marriage-related stuff. And the number one thing that the enemy, if he cannot take your relationship with Jesus, he's going to destroy your marriage because if he can destroy your marriage, oftentimes he can destroy your faith. Because it's the person that you're most connected with. Your soul's tied to them. You feel deeply for this person. Listen, if the enemy can't rob your faith from you, if he can't get you to not believe in Christ anymore, he's going to come after your relationships. It's the first thing that he did in the garden. The first thing that he did was he pitted man and woman against each other. I'll prove it to you. When, they, when Eve bites the apple and they figure out that they're naked, oh my gosh, let's put some fig leaves. I don't know why they chose fig leaves. Let's cover up, let's hide. And God calls them out, Adam, Eve, where are you? Well, hey, we're naked. And God's like, well, who told you you were naked? And what happens? Watch this. Who took a bite of the fruit? Well, well God, she did. Oh, she, she told me that it was good. <laughs> and what does he do? Well, God, it was the snake. And all of a sudden, they start blaming each other. The very first thing that the enemy's going to go after, if he can't steal your faith, he's going to go after your marriage. It's the reason we can't give up. We can't be defeated by that. Number seven. This is the last point I'll make. Truly forgive. Truly forgive. Remember this, forgiveness is a choice not to remember or bring up the offense any longer. So here's what this means. In the middle of your arguments, resist every natural inclination to get historical about the argument. So when you're arguing with something, be in the present. Don't dive into the past. (laughs) Because doesn't that happen oftentimes in marriage? Oh, well, remember five years ago when you did that to me? That no longer applies because if you've truly forgiven them, it's over. Imagine if God would do that to us. Well, I'll forgive you this time, but don't, don't do it again. I'll forgive you this time, but remember five years ago when you promised that you'd never do that again? Don't get historical in the arguments. Gary Thomas put it this way. Couples don't fall out of love, they fall out of forgiveness. They don't fall out of love, they fall out of forgiveness. The reason that your marriage ends is because you make a choice not to forgive your spouse. And ultimately, it points back to a greater thing that you feel that the sin that that person has against you is greater than your sin against God. And I want you to remember something. I'm not here to give you five practical things. I'm here to point you back to the gospel. I'm here to point you back to Jesus because the only thing that is going to save your marriage, the only thing that is going to give you the marriage that you want, the only thing that is going to give you a strong, lasting marriage that you can say at at your deathbed, we made it. The only thing is a relationship with Jesus and community with other believers. A relationship with Jesus, a community with other believers. This is why the church is so important. The thing that I love about the church, it it has withstood every test of time. 
It's withstood Roman empires. It's withstood a very crazy period in the Reformation when the church was killing people in God's name, but it's still here. So here's what I want you to know. God's primary plan in fixing your marriage is you getting plugged into a church so that your relationship with Jesus can grow and so that your community with other people can grow. It's why church is so important. It's not something that we just do on Sundays. At the end of the day, it brings us life. At the end of the day, it is the thing that consistently points us back to Jesus, that reminds us, okay, I can't do this on my own. I can't do this by myself. 